Welcome to Let's Connect. My name is Keith McPherson, and I'm so glad you've decided to join me for this next episode. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by a new friend of mine, Dr. Elizabeth Cronin's here to speak about her work as a clinical psychologist. So sit back, relax, and let's connect. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I'm so glad you could join me here. And uh, it's a really special episode today because I'm interviewing a new friend of mine that I made recently. Uh, Elizabeth Cronin is going to be here on the podcast. I met her recently when I was on her podcast. She hosts an amazing show where she interviews authors with new books. And she reached out to me and asked if I would be a, a guest on the podcast to speak about my book, Making Sense of Mindfulness. And we had a, a wonderful conversation there. And after the podcast was done, we continued to chat. And I was really intrigued by her work in the world. So she's going to be joining today on the podcast to, to share her insights on topics including uh, anxiety, stress management, how, what it means to be mindful, how to meditate, and uh, much more. So it's going to be really rich with ideas and tips and just to get into the mind of what does it mean to be in the field of clinical psychology as well. So before we get into that conversation, um, I just wanted to also let you know that I've recently released a program for parents and their kids to connect on the topic of mindfulness. Speaking of mindfulness, um, I put together a 20-lesson uh, module system that comes out every week online. I put it together with my friend Shar Jackson, who was a, a guest on the podcast several weeks ago. And um, it's called Mindfulness at Home. And especially in the time we're in, you know, I'm recording this right now in the middle of the uh, coronavirus pandemic, and there's a lot of uh, uncertainty and complexity in the world right now. And it's just really important, I think, that the next generation has tools in place to, you know, early on start learning how to navigate all the complexity that this world is um, in right now. So this program is um, available, it's at a site called ponolifeschools.com. And uh, there you'll find many lessons on mindfulness practice for, for children that uh, parents can do with their kids. We cover topics like gratitude, forgiveness, uh, how to deal with times of uncertainty and difficulties understanding that. Um, a growth mindset, and, and so much more as well. So please check that out. And uh, without further ado, I, I want to jump in now and introduce you to Dr. Elizabeth Cronin. So here we go. Well, I have been so looking forward to having you on the podcast, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us today. We're here with Elizabeth Cronin on Let's Connect. Thanks for being here. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we recently connected through uh, your podcast, and I was so intrigued after the podcast speaking with you about your story being a, a clinical psychologist and just how you got there. And I wanted to bring you on the show to to share with people a bit more about the work you're doing in the world and uh, your incredible mindfulness journey as well, it seems like. Um, I'm just curious how, how one even begins to enter into the idea of, I'm going to be a clinical psychologist when I grow up. <laughs> How did that happen for you? Well, so for me, it was a while in the making. And I had um, gone to Boston College and studied communications. So I didn't actually know I wanted to go into psychology. I had an idea I did, 
Um, and communications was pretty interesting in terms of how you market to people, how do you, you know, how do you appeal to the to people in general and um, get their interests. So I had studied writing and advertising and public relations. But when I started working, I felt like I really wanted to do more to directly help people. So after, after working in human resources for a while, I went back to, I was actually working at Harvard University um, at the Kennedy School of Government. And I was able to apply to the Graduate School of Education and was accepted. So that was exciting. They have a human development and psychology program, a master's program. And I was very interested in doing that. And when, right before I started, I ended up um, getting pregnant. So I had my son, I deferred my admission. I had my son and started when he was about three months old. So I went back to graduate school at that point, I was 29. And I got my master's degree and it was very, very exciting um, to be there. There were some old school faculty there. Carol Gilligan was there. Um, Annie Rogers was there. So there's a lot of very progressive people teaching. Um, so that was very exciting. And I, I liked it so much. I had it in my head that I'd like to go back um, and get my doctorate. I'd like to continue. So I took a research position working at Wellesley College on um, it was a child care study. And that was really, that was really fun and was rewarding. But as time went by, I ended up getting pregnant, had my second child, <laughs> and then had a third. So I just ended up kind of putting it all on hold. And it's kind of a nice story because I, I'll, I'll share it with my clients, people I work with now, that you know it's not too late to go back later because Time went by, and when my youngest was eight, I decided, yes, I'm really going to do this. I'm going back and started, you know, five to seven year potentially uh, doctoral program. And I wow. think I was 42 years old. Wow, that's amazing. I just uh, was thinking about Louise Hay, who started the uh, publishing company Hay House at the age of 60. And, uh, I just heard her voice come through and through you as well, just saying, you know, you can you can start things later in life or return to them. There's no uh, deadline for that. So thanks for that reminder. Uh, wow. well, that's a funny uh, connection we have too, because I had I know you're a fan of Louise Hayes. You talk talk about her in your book, and I I really strongly believe in affirmations. Mm. And I remember in high school taking a class that was sort of on psychology. I don't remember what the name of it was, but finding out, you know, having an assignment where we were supposed to collect 10 quotes that meant something to us and just thinking it doesn't get any better than this. Like, like that, that was an assignment, like just always finding so much inspiration in the powerful words of others. And so I, you know, that's something I try to share with everyone I work with is share my story and be encouraging and supportive because it's okay if you're 42 and realize this is something you still want to do. You can make it happen if you, if you, if you want to, if you're going to enjoy it. Yeah. Wow. I love that message. Um, I'm curious, just the, the background of being a clinical psychologist, I've met other people that are in that line of work. And I noticed that there's a lot of different ways to look at that form of work and I'm curious, based on like your background experience and where you are now, what's the lens right now that you look at this type of work through when you think of clinical psychology? 
I think that the one thing that I, I, being 42 and going back to school, I really knew I wanted to work with people and provide therapy. I also knew though, I really wanted to immerse myself in the fields of psychology. And I think that by the time you finish four years, you've been exposed to a lot of theory. Um, and so you get, and you know, when you study um, psychological testing and systems theories, you learn about industrial psychology. So I think what that does is it shapes you as a psychologist to, to think from many different perspectives, to not just have one lens mm. through which you look at things. Wow. I, I'll use the lens of, I'll use a psychodynamic lens when I'm trying to help someone make connections between the past and the present. So if someone has realized they have a history of taking certain jobs that aren't working out for them, I'll say to them, we should probably think about, you know, what belief you've developed that's led you to keep making this choice. And then, so that's the psychodynamic approach. Then some people, you know, I'll have someone who has trouble getting out of bed every morning and I'll say, you know, you could just work on that. That could just be a behavioral thing. We could talk about it that way. There's a way to approach that or, you know, wow. so there's, so I, that's kind of how I work at Sam sort of eclectic. Yeah. It sounds like there's many ways to look at it depending on the client that is in your, you know, in your presence at the time. Um, do you find working with, with clients that, uh, there's a similar theme that runs through them all, or is every single client different? That's an interesting question because over the years, what, what when I first started out, which remember wasn't that long ago, but it was 10 years ago when I started a private practice of my own. And initially you just, you'll work with, you know, you'll work with whoever kind of shows up. Over time though, what's happened is for probably a good five or six years, I've just been taking referrals from people that I've already been working with. And so I, I do have basically everybody I'm working with has anxiety. Mm. Is that, so, I'm curious, is that sort of a newer trend that you're seeing or would you suspect, or is that like based on the times or what's your thoughts on that piece? We, well, we, have, we know from research that the levels of anxiety are, are rapidly increasing for all age groups, even for children. And it's probably partly a result of the times. And I think it's also that people that have come to me with anxiety felt like they got better. And so they've referred people to me that like they'll hear someone else has anxiety and refer them to me. And I think that's pretty common because I did specialized training in a couple of different areas. So it's interesting to me that I, I mean, I, I could have ended up working with all around pregnancy issues because I did a lot of training on um, maternal mental health and infant mental health. And, and I, you know, I was very interested in that, but it is funny what ends up coming to you. Mm. And then I think you just have to think, well, that's probably meant to be. And so anxiety has become, and I think also that fits with my mindfulness meditation training, because that's a powerful tool for anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. I've noticed that you've dove into mindfulness quite a bit with the Tara Brock uh, training and the Jack Cornfield training that um, takes place around the world. And, I admire that you're bringing mindfulness into your practice. 
just also from the lens there too of of anxiety. What is anxiety to you? So yes, I think we think about anxiety, and then we also think about stress. I mean, I think that we have a lot of words for it. Um, worry. <laughs> it's a lot of things. But I, I think anxiety is when you're just feeling unsettled and you feel as though you don't, you just don't have enough control over things and that, you know, something, something bad could happen and you're not going to be prepared. And so it shows up in many different ways. You know, I've had clients who have like packing to go away is a real struggle because they feel like they need to know, remember everything they might possibly need and, you know, working with them. So that's when you might take more of a cognitive uh, approach with them and, and just say to them, well, what would happen if you forgot your sandals, you know, and help them see, but they, the anxiety is really, really challenging because anxiety can make a simple task a lot more difficult to do. It can make a task impossible to do. Um, so that's anxiety. Stress is sort of like worry and it, it can be more specific to something like I'm really stressed out about this project I have at work. Whereas anxiety can, I think anxiety is more uh, pervasive. It's just this unsettled feeling that you know, I'm, I'm not prepared, I'm not ready, or the world's not a safe place, or I don't know if I can trust people. It mm. shows up in a lot of different forms. Wow. You mentioned like cognitive behavioral therapy is one way to, to treat anxiety or help with that. I'm curious specifically for people listening that aren't familiar with the term and um, maybe other ways too, people that are battling anxiety, which is I read once one in every five of us, <laughs> like, how do we cope? What, what are some ways that we can um, work towards preventing or dealing with anxiety? Well, it's interesting because I've often thought that I'd love to put together sort of a basic everyday psychology program. And, and maybe, maybe I, I will still do it. I, I try to keep notes because there are basic things that everyone should know you know, we should really have a basic level of psychology introduced to us through school in some way. Uh, because one of the one of the first things I'll often do with someone who's really got a lot of anxiety is help them understand the triangle of, of your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. And I mean, that's a very simple thing to explain, just, you know, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors, and how when you hear a loud crash in the basement, if you think it's an intruder, that's the thought that comes to you, then you're going to feel anxious and, and fearful and your behavior will be call for help, run out of the house, something along those lines. And if you hear a loud crash in the basement and you know you just let the family dog down into the basement and there were some glasses sitting, you, you, you might think, oh, the dog's knocked over the glasses. You might feel annoyed. You might feel curious whether or not that happened, but your behavior might be to go down to the site of the crash of the noise. Mm. So just something that simple that people sometimes are like, oh, oh, I get it. I'm having a thought that is creating a feeling. And then I'm behaving. It, it's just for me, 
people find that very powerful to start to realize then they start then you know that's the first step and then you start to help them learn how to like slow down and notice mm. when they're having thoughts what kind of a thought they're having and um it's it's very rewarding because i do i do like cbt and do a lot of cbt because but when people go for therapy they're usually something they want to be different they want something to change um they're looking they're looking for and i think now more than ever people are looking less for insight than for something to be different mm, right wow amazing um one thing you just said there in all of that was the this you slow it down like to slow down the pace i find like right now in the world we're rushing so frantically through our day-to-day -day life how do you begin to help somebody slow down in their life to become aware of their thinking so one of the things i think is helpful is to remind them that you've been living this way for you know to reflect with them and say how how long have you been dealing with this okay so let's take the urgency out of it because you know, you, you had insomnia for a year before you finally made an appointment and just help them reflect on there's more time than you think. Again, it's a thought. It's sort of a, yeah, I, I do a lot of psychoeducation with people. I probably do more psychoeducation than the average, average therapist. Um, because I, I finally that if people know the idea behind it, it's easier for them to retain the strategy that they can use. And so, you know, you just explain that by slowing down, you're able to catch yourself and start to see the assumptions you're making and, um, and see that there are more choices. Mm, lovely. Yeah. I, I'm intrigued too. I mean, you've been doing quite a bit of extensive mindfulness training yourself and what I was reading on your your blog, which I love, by the way, you have so many great pieces in your blog. I'm curious too, like when you think of slow, I th when I think of slowing down, I think of mindfulness. Well, how do you see mindfulness? What is that practice to you? I was exposed to mindfulness um, in 2005. So I was exposed to mindfulness in 2005. And I learned about it through, I was at McLean Hospital and I was doing my a practicum there. I was there for two days a week. And it was a diet, I learned it through dialectical behavior therapy, which is a treatment um, established by Marsha Linehan. It's very effective for people that have had trauma, um, for people that really need to develop skills in addition to healing and overcoming you know, psychological injury, they, they really need skills like emotion regulation and distress tolerance, and they need help with interpersonal effectiveness. So I was introduced to mindfulness through the groups that we, that we ran at the, um, at their treatment facility. And it changed my life um, because dialectical behavior therapy has a huge mindfulness component it sort of takes uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which helps you understand, okay, your thoughts affect your feelings and behavior, the connection there. And then it also adds in there, you know, all these being aware in the moment of what, of, of the connection about 
the different choices you have, the, the different pr- ways you can see things. Um, and it's very validating. Mindfulness is very validating and non-judgmental. And I think that's one of the things that's really healing because sometimes the people that have really been damaged the most psychologically hurt by others or by experiences can people get frustrated with them. They just, you know, they just, it's the same thing sometimes feel after they've had a major loss and they're still grieving and people want you to like move on, move on, you know? Mm -hmm. And so this validation part is really important. So that was my experience to mindfulness. Um, And it was just, it's like I said, it's sort of a component of dialectical behavior therapy, but I, I used it from the start that heavily influenced how I worked with people because I, I realized right away, you really need to let people know you, you're hearing them, you understand them, you see the pain they're in, you, you get it. And, and this is where, again, the mindfulness meditation, not but, but you're, you know, you've suffered, you're in pain, you deserve better, this is not your fault. And you're the only one who can really make a difference in your life now. Wow. You know, and all hoping somebody would come back and fix your situation, it you know, probably isn't going to happen. So I practice a lot of mindfulness exercises. I learned about like mindful eating, mindful walking. I even, the way I make my bed in the morning, I try to make my bed mindfully. And every time I make my bed, I try to remember the first time I got that the comforter that's on my bed and how excited it was to like, see how that comforter would look with the pillows. I got, and I try to remember, like, I was so excited. I'm still happy. I have this, you know, bring that mindfulness to just making my bed. And then I really didn't start the meditation practice until um, years later, probably. So that was 2005, probably was like 2010 when I started some training with mindfulness without borders. And I really didn't do that regularly until um, a year and a half ago when I started the training with Jack Kornfield and Tara Brock. So this is a long way of answering your question. I think it's possible to learn, definitely learn mindfulness and become more mindful about your life without meditating. Wow. which I may be going out on a limb saying that meditation off enhances that experience. And it's, it's a great way to become more mindful, but there are lots of other ways I think. And I think uh, Thich Nhat Hanh really brought that to people's attention too, that, you know, his, his books, um, pieces, every step pieces, every breath. He's got a bunch of books. He talks about, you could be mindful even if you don't have a meditation practice, a formal meditation practice. So that's sort of my slant on it because of the way I was introduced to it. Wow, I love it. I love the part that uh, making the bed can be a mindfulness practice and evoking the feelings of when you got the comforter. I mean, what I've never thought of that before, but absolutely. Um, you also mentioned mindful eating, and I'm curious what that looks like for you, how you integrate mindfulness into that experience? Oh, so I, um, I'd love to say I'm mindful eater all the time, but I'm just as bad as (laughs) having my muffin in the car on my way to work. I do that 
but just just sort of for me, mindful eating is sort of like just realizing, okay, I'm I'm getting kind of full, or or okay, I'm not in a big hurry. I mean, I don't, I'm not in a rush. I think sometimes we just approach everything like it's another task to be done. Mm, that's such a great idea is just to slow it down enough to be aware of when you're full. Or absolutely, I I noticed this. I was reading on your blog. Uh, your experience of being on a, a silent retreat. And uh, it was intriguing to, to read through that. And how long was it? it? Was it seven days, I think you'd mentioned? It was. It was seven days. Wow. I mean, what, first of all, what inspired you to be in silence for seven days? And uh, I want to hear how that went for you. I think you mentioned that you'd wanted it be, to be shorter next time. <laughs> and I'm, I'm curious, just that, that whole experience of what that was like. Well, it's funny, Keith, because at this point, now I want a longer experience. Oh, really? Okay. So that was my, a while ago. Initially, I thought, and and I don't think it's uncommon to leave and feel like, okay, that was it, checked on that. <laughs> but people start to realize how powerful it was. And then they, they tend to want more and are willing to do it for longer. Um, I'd like to think that I was daring and, and bold but I actually was required to do the seven day silent retreat for the teacher certification training. That was a requirement of the teacher certification training, which I'm thrilled that it was thrilled that it was because it was a, um, it's from a lot of people, it could be sort of life changing. It's uh, you, you learn a lot about yourself and you get reconnected with what it's like to just not have pressure on you. And it was really uncomfortable for me in the beginning because I went and it was so uncomfortable having all this time to breathe. But all I kept doing was thinking about how I I really have so much other stuff to do. And I, I felt anxious. I actually felt really anxious. Like this is like the same kind of anxiety I was saying to you, like, this probably isn't going to end well. Like this is, can't be a good thing that like there was nothing, no specific fear that I was experiencing. It was just like, this doesn't seem like a good idea at all. Like why am I doing this? And wow, just all the, I think so much that comes from our culture, like you shouldn't be doing this. You should, you should tackle your to-do list and, you know, get other stuff done. So it was for me very, very hard to settle. And I, I, share with people. I just finished teaching a, a, a course, an introduction to mindfulness. And I share with people that probably the hardest thing I struggled with was restlessness, mm-hmm. sitting and just thinking, you know, when is the bell going to ring? Um, so it's sort of the feeling like you're watching the clock, only your eyes are shut and you have no idea. You have no idea. Like, and sometimes for when you go for a whole week, sometimes an hour just feels like five hours. And then sometimes an hour, the bell rings and you're like, Oh, wow. Wow. That's incredible. (laughs) And so the outcome of that experience, I mean, what did you come away with after being in silence for seven days? It really helped me um, start a regular practice because after it's been all you do for seven days, it doesn't sound like much to sit for half an hour or an hour every morning. Oh, wow. So, I mean, right 
So right there, that's a big thing. And I'll, I'll tell people, like, if you're, if you've started a, a meditation practice and it falls, falls by the way, and you try again, you try again, try going to a half day silent retreat or try going to a full day silent retreat because that experience, I don't know, it just kind of gives you confidence or something. It puts it in perspective. Mm, that's amazing. As you're talking to about meditation practice, I mean, there's so many different forms of that. Um, what does that practice look like for you? So I'm in training for its Vipassana. So it's mindfulness meditation because, because they're all, you know, there's different types that you can um, pursue. And the idea is you're looking for insight, insight into yourself and insight into life that can guide you and help you be a more compassionate person have more loving kindness towards yourself and towards others. So for me, the practice is to, to be able to sit, calm my body down enough, you know, focus on my breathing, get to a place where I'm relaxed and then just be present and then watch what comes up. Wow. And that's, that's the insight part that sometimes nothing Sometimes nothing comes up and I, I literally sit and listen to noises and I, and then, then because our minds always wandering when that happens, I go like, Oh, look at this. I'm just sitting here listening to, you know, I start thinking about how I'm just sitting here listening to noises. Nothing's really coming up. I mean, there's always like a commentary running in our, in our brains all yes. the time. Yeah. Absolutely. What, what is that commentary exactly? Cause I get that experience too. And I'm sitting there and I'm trying to have this enlightened experience or this aha insight, like you say. And then this commentary is just going on, going, well, this is this even worth it? I need to be doing other things besides this. What, what do you attribute that commentary to? What is that? So from a psychological point of view, as a psychologist, what you learn is that over the, over, throughout our development as we're growing up, we internalize all the messages and the directives that were given by adults. You take something simple like manners. Hmm. You know, when my children were little, you know, they'd ask for something and I'd say, how do you ask for that? Over and over again until they knew that you need to say please, you need to say thank you. And so the thing, the messages that we hear over and over again, they play automatically in our brain all the time. I mean, there are neuronal pathways that fire up. You don't even know that you're having those thoughts. Wow. You don't even, like you, most of us can tie our shoes without looking. You know, if you're, if you're able to tie your shoes, you can probably, most of us can drive a car without thinking about driving the car. And many people have gone right by their exit because they were thinking about something other than driving and, and went right by their exit. So we've all had that where we're, so we get caught up in the, in whatever's going on in our head, whatever we're worrying about, whatever we're thinking about. So it's planning for the future. We spend a lot of time in our head planning for the future. So a lot of time that that's what we're doing. We're, but the, the bulk of it is sort of culturally driven. It's the ways that we think we should be spending our time. We're in our head, either planning or evaluating, you know, assessing, or we're ruminating over something that, already happened that you can't do anything about or trying to get a lesson from it or trying to figure out what we did wrong 
a lot of blaming ourselves, a lot of beating ourselves up. Mm, yeah, we're hard on ourselves. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, it, I'm re- reminded of the article as well you wrote about um, learning how to ride a bicycle backwards, which was so intriguing and just how we tend to be on this automatic pilot from our past conditioning. And like this, I, I think you used this analogy of learning with a beginner's mind how to do something. And it can be quite challenging at first to to shift the mindset. I mean, you've, you mentioned some theories and whatnot about it, but um, I guess in in reality, like how do you start shifting patterns when you be, and how do you even become aware of the patterns that are running? <laughs> so the one of the, this, and this again, I'll attribute to sort of the mindfulness meditation training. And this is this again, when you're, when you sit, if you sit and meditate, it isn't really that you're going to have an aha moment or that there's going to be some, wonderful spiritual awakening or big aha moment. It's really about just learning how to sit there and just notice what's happening, what's coming up in your body. Noticing that, oh, my my knee hurts. I mean, there's so much information that doesn't register because of the constant tapes that are playing in our head. So that's that's one of the ways that you get someone to change is you get them to notice when they're caught up in the stories that they keep playing in their head. All the Jack Kornfield likes to say, we all have our top 10 tunes and they just play over and over and over again. And just people can, and this is where therapy is extremely powerful. If you go for therapy for one hour a week, you've, you're making time and you're and you're creating the space to sit with someone whose only only objective is to help you reflect to help you take a look at what how you're living your life what's coming up and and for people the other thing that I actually have done a lot of is work with people who never had any therapy before and I actually really enjoy working with people that that don't know what to expect um, and in part because I'm very active and I'm willing to talk a lot and, and do, do what I can to make them feel comfortable until they get feel a little more at ease. Um, but you get people to change by helping them get back in touch with their bodies. Because when something, so people who don't know how to use therapy will be like, I don't know, what are we supposed to talk about? I don't know what to do. And they'll be like, well, what kind of things are you worrying about? I don't know. I kind of worry about everything. And so I'll be like, okay, well, let's, here's an, here's an approach over the course of the week. Notice when something happens and you just feel a little zing in your belly or all all of a sudden your shoulders go up or all of a sudden you're clenching your jaw. I, I try to get people to notice when they feel something in their body and don't worry about trying to figure just, come in and tell me the story about what was happening because our bodies will wake us up to what's going on. Our bodies will tell us what we're ignoring. And, and it's, that's probably the, the key way that I try to help people notice what, what even needs to change. Wow. That's fascinating to me that our body holds so much wisdom that often we forget to listen to. We neglect it. We're so up in our, thinking mind or our mind story 
which is also something that I correlate quite a bit in the mindfulness work too, is just how to get back into the body. I love this. I just want to sit in on, be a fly on the wall in your sessions or have a session with you because of this, this energy of how do you, how do you stay connected to the physical body? Whoa, amazing. Um, I'm also just curious. I mean, you spend a lot of time uh, as well. You've developed an amazing podcast. You've got some incredible guests that you interview, I believe weekly, it seems like on there. And uh, I'm curious the background of, of how that podcast started and just like what you've, um, what you've learned along the way, interacting with all of these incredible people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice. I, well, so it's, I'm actually a host for the new books network. So, and, and he has, I think he's got up to 87 channels of where he's got hosts that specialize in different subjects, history and English and Russian literature. I mean, some of them are very, very specific. And I have a, a colleague of mine, um, a former classmate who was doing, she was a host for the channel. So I found out about it through her, a former classmate from graduate school and had reached out to him because I was doing this mindfulness training and wanted to start interviewing people. Yeah. And just curious when you, when you reflect on all of these people that you've interviewed with these amazing stories and, um, you know, gifts to share with the world, I'm just curious what, what, what you've learned and what, what kind of, um, I guess, richness has come out of that for you. I, I think what's interesting to me is that that experience of interviewing authors is not very different than the experience I have working with a, a wide range of people dealing with anxiety that just we all have our own story and we all have our we all have a certain path in a direction that feels helpful to us and an author has just had the time and the support and whatever they needed to to put it into a book but pretty much everyone has you know they have a story and if they if they've been doing therapy you know anyone I've been working with they start one place and then, you know, after a year, two years, or I work with people over many years, they're in a different place. And I try my best to help people realize that um, because it's, it's a very neat thing to talk to an author and to, you know, to get, to find out, you know, how they, how they came to get interested in mindfulness or how they came to write the book that they've written. And it's, um, yeah, there are overlaps to to the work that you do with anyone who's yeah. who's looking to um, grow and to continue to grow and to and and reflect, which you know a good book helps you helps you see uh, the, the 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 reflections and the personal growth of the of the writer. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I want to encourage people to go listen to your podcast because the episodes that I've heard have been really inspiring. And I love the space you leave when you interview people. It's um, it's just awesome. You really do help them bring out their story and their message to the world. And it's just a real dopamine hit if you're looking for one to, to tune into the podcast. I'm, I'm also curious when you talk about uh, learning and growth, I, I see you this way, like uh, just in the little time that we've known each other. I mean, you just seem like a lifelong learner and somebody who really does um, push yourself to the edge of growth. And I just absolutely admire it in you. And I'm curious, I mean, you spend a lot of time with people uh, one-on-one helping and serving them. And I'm curious 
um, from the perspective of the work you do, like, how do you self-care? How do you make sure that you don't get burned out in that work where it becomes all about everybody else and you forget to neglect or you neglect yourself? How do you, do you have any strategies in place for that? Or what does that look like for you? When my kids were all little, I have three, three um, children. When they were little, people would say, talk about self-care. And if you have small children, it's like, what are you talking about? There is no time for self-care. And over the years, I've found that you have to get very specific for self-care and have learned to get a lot of a big bang out of small things. So one of the things that I have is I, I have a lot of extra white pillowcases and I just put a new pillowcase on my pillow when I want that feeling that the sheets have just been changed. And, you know, I, I mean, it's another thing I love to have my laundry smell like, you know, fabric softener. I just like that. And I certain scent I like, and it just brings me pleasure. So I make an effort to get the fabric softener and make sure to remember to put it in the laundry. It's the small pleasures that can really enhance your life versus some one big thing. So there's that. And there's like, you know, even if I'm rushing out, sometimes I'll just say, you know, I'm just going to make that cup of tea. And, and, you know, it's going to take me four more minutes and I just give myself permission to do that. Um, It's lots of little things like that. Or, and I think for me, self-care is a lot to do with gratitude, just being able to, you take better care of yourself when you look around all the time and see the things that you already have. I mean, that's taking good care of yourself. And self-care is remembering you're human and not beating up on yourself. Because I've spent a lot, a lot of time feeling like I had to try to be perfect and felt, you know, not good enough and putting myself under a lot of pressure to try. And then, you know, it's like I say to sometimes to my clients, when you realize like, wait a minute, you could just drop out of the race. You could just say, I, I quit. You could just say, okay, you go, you guys could win. And it, that's self-care. Wow. That to me is probably the most important thing I do is say, okay, fine. Yeah. I, I'm not going to compete. Wow. That is so encouraging to hear you say that. And you're speaking to the choir when you say perfectionist <laughs> qualities. I'm, I'm right with you over here. And this line of work can be like that. I mean, when I'm coaching as well, it's, um, it can be really challenging. I get in my head going, oh, did, did I really do a good job? Is it, did it go well enough? That whole perfectionist side comes out on my inner story. Um, and it's just so liberating to hear you speak about this, tuning into the gratitude and the simple pleasures and not being so hard on ourselves. I mean, that is such a powerful message that I just love that you stand for as well. So thank you for that. Powerful. Yeah, I have, I have clients who, over time, if they've worked with me for a while, they'll catch themselves as they're speaking with me. They'll, if, I'm, I'm very, I, I listen carefully. And if someone tells me like, I'm just not good at this, or I'm not good at that. And I'll just give, I can just give them a look like a mother can look at a child and I give them a look and they'll go, I know. I, it's not that I'm not good. I, that's something I'm working on, something I'm working on even the language that people use in their therapy session, I'll say, you don't want to keep telling me I'm not good at that. That's not going to bring about change for you. It kind of goes back to affirmations again, right? Like yeah. we did, we did the opposite of effort. We're, 
we're affirming negative ideas on a regular basis. Oh, wow. Yes. Do you have a, a regular affirmation practice or an affirmation you go to to build yourself up? So I do. Um, it, it'll, it goes along with my restlessness and my you know difficulty sitting still and not thinking it's like, because it's four minutes long. Uh, it's a, I think it's Catherine Strawbridge. She's on, um, she's actually a dancer and I'm going to say she's out of Australia or somewhere, but she, she's on Insight Timer oh, and yeah. she has two morning, morning affirmations for, for like the start of a good day. And one of them she calls, um, one of them is her affirmations espresso and the other one is affirmations latte. So I do the espresso because she does it in four minutes. <laughs> That's a lot take 12 minutes or something. And so I get right to it. And, you know, first thing in the morning, I get something done in four minutes. And it's, it's, it's powerful. I really, she just hits on all the things that I want to start my day remembering that, you know, today's a new day. You got to be grateful for a new day. Um, why be stressing out when it's, you know, it's a blessing to, to be starting again and, everything you need, you will have, and you can be calm and, and joyful and you can live with ease. It's just, she just moves very rapidly through the, the things that I want to hear on a regular basis. That's new. I just started doing that regularly during, since the pandemic, I just started to feel like I was aware that I was starting to feel a little bit like, like, what, you know, oh, another day we're at home, can't see. And I just started to feel like things were getting heavy. And I, and I went back to that, which is something I turned to affirmations at different points in my life, but yeah. And I've been doing that daily. So it's a, I've recommended it to many, many people. I don't think, I don't know if I said her name right, but, um, but she's on insight timer um, okay. and it's a nice one. Wow, thank you. That sounds like such a nice alternative to coffee, too. <laughs> I like it. And what I'm absolutely appreciating, too, about you is your integrity, just the way that you uh, walk the talk. You're somebody that's, um, you know, living uh, with that integrity and truth as you're moving through the world. And I just totally want you to know how much I have gratitude for you, and I see you. And uh, I just want to thank you for being on this this podcast, too, and, and sharing your heart with us. And um I'm going to put again your website down in the show notes so people can stay connected with your amazing podcast and blog and perhaps also reach out if they're looking for, for a session with you as well, which I highly recommend. I imagine you have a, a very full list. Well, I do. And that's a frustration I have because I do get a lot of people reaching out and it really is hard to find somebody. And so my, my hope is in the future that I'll put some more content available so that people could access it you know, through my website, because there are some things that I do with almost everybody I work with that I can figure a way to put that together um, that and have that be a resource. That would be great. Yeah, absolutely. I um, Yeah, well, I'll encourage people to continue to go to your site. And I thought you were going to say, uh, my hope is that I'm going to be able to clone myself like 50 times <laughs> over. <laughs> but uh, I don't know if that'll be possible in this lifetime. I don't know. I think one of me is enough, I think. <laughs> well, it is amazing. Your authenticity shines through. And uh, again, thank you so much for being here on, on the podcast today and sending you lots of love. Yeah, thank you for having me and we'll stay connected. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, that concludes another episode of Let's Connect. And I just love the tools and tips that Elizabeth was sharing with us today. I hope you'll have a chance to check out her podcast and her website and maybe even apply some of those ideas to your own life, like smelling the linens and making the bed with gratitude. I love this. Um, So until next time, everybody, be well, be safe. And I look forward to you joining me on the next episode of Let's Connect.